0: Let me start by expressing my very large appreciation of being invited as keynote speaker at this first conference organized by Professor Lenton as founding director of the Nebraska Water for Food Institute. The theme of my, my presentation is the future, the future of agriculture a look through the green-blue water lens. I'm going to start to look at at the, wor- the world through the green-blue water lens, and later I will continue be looking at the relation to agriculture, and further on, further on <coughs> to the global scale interactions <coughs> of blue and green water. Let's start with the paradigm. The paradigm (coughs) starts with when the rain hits the ground, (coughs) then the rain, sorry, (coughs) the rain is partitioned into two flows. The water flow back to the atmosphere, that is the green water flow, and the liquid water flow through rivers and aquifers back to the mouth. <clears throat> there are two partitioning points when the rain hits the ground. The first one is the upper one where the, where the rain is partitioned between the blue water running off the, uh, the surface, the surface runoff, and the infiltration. And then there is a second partitioning point in the root zone <clears throat> where, the, where the infiltrated water is partitioned between the, the percolation onwards down to the groundwater and the water that goes back to the atmosphere, either because it's picked up by the roots or because it evaporates from wet surfaces. So this is the, pa- the basic paradigm. <clears throat> Now, a country's water balance looks completely different if you just look at the blue water or if you include the green water. And here you see an example from, the, from, the, uh, from Sub-Saharan Africa. It is the water balance of Kenya. If you just look at the blue water, the only thing you see is the thin worm at the bottom of this diagram, the blue water worm, which contains 5% of the water over Kenya. If you include the green water in in your perspective, you will get aware of the 95% water that forms the green water flow back to the atmosphere. And that is the water which has been involved in crop production, in grass production, in forest production, and the water that has evaporated from dry surfaces (coughs) and from wet wet surfaces. (coughs) Now, these differences between the flows of green and blue water, they differ (coughs) greatly between different countries. And as as was said earlier, I have been very interested in these similarities and differences between different regions. And here is an exposition of the difference of the water balance over a catchment. To the left, we have the temperate zone, the the boreal forest zone. In the middle, we have the semi-arid tropical savanna. And to the right, we have the (laughs) the humid um, the, the humid tropical rainforest. <clears throat> the, uh, if we look at these, you can see it is a very large difference from, uh, from the water balance side. And in the, mid, in the mid one, the semi-arid tropical savanna, that's where we have the majority of the poor and undernourished in the world. And they depend on a water constraint agricultural production. Half of them are rain and the other half is irrigated. If we look closer on the differences in water balance and start with the temperate one, which is the one where I come from myself, the Scandinavia, we have a very limited precipitation of the order of 600 millimeter. We have an evaporative demand of the atmosphere, which is very moderate, somewhere between 100 and 500 millimeter per year. And the result is that about half the precipitation and goes back to the atmosphere as a green water flow, and the other half forms runoff of the blue water flow. <laughs> if we look at the semi arid tropical savanna, we have the same limited rainfall of the order of 600 millimeter, but now we have an evaporative demand of the atmosphere, which is of the order of 1,500 or even 2,000 millimeter per year. And the result of that is that practically all the precipitation goes back to the atmosphere. And what remains to, to generate blue water is very limited, less than 100 millimeter. And the result of that is that the small rivers go empty during most of the year. They only contain water during the rainstorms, whereas the, the, the permanent water you find in the large rivers. Now, this is, is the example of Kenya that we just saw. Most of the water is, is green. And it's, the blue is very limited. And then to the right in the diagram, you have the humid tropical rainforest with enormous amounts of water, several meters of water. The same large evaporative demand as in the semi-arid tropics, but now there is water enough to meet that demand and still leave a large surplus to form rivers like the, <coughs> like the Amazon River and the Congo River, etc. Now these differences are mirrored in, in water security <coughs> potential, and this has been pinpointed by, by Gray and Sadoff in their categorization of countries. They say they can see three types of countries in the world. <coughs> Those that have harnessed their hydrology, the industrial countries. Those that are hampered by their hydrology, the emerging economies and those that remain hostages of their hydrology, the low-income countries. The blue and the green water, they interact in the landscape. So by an integrated land water management, you can keep the whole water issues together. So here you have a catchment. And the water in the catchment, that is the, the precipitation which has fallen within the water divide. And it is being d- divided between the green water return flow to the atmosphere and, what re- and the surplus beyond that green water, which is the water that forms the blue water runoff. And the blue water runoff, that's the only water that man can manage. <coughs> it is withdrawn to cities and for industry and return to the system as as more or less polluted return flow. It is withdrawn to irrigation. And the more uh, more efficient irrigation is, the more of that water goes back to the atmosphere, and the less is the return flow (coughs) loaded with pollutants (coughs) going to the blue water system. But that's the paradigm. Now, what's special with agriculture as a water user? Now, in, there is around me at home, there is a large discussion of, of water losses and everything you could do by, by uh, managing the water losses and ideally getting rid of the water losses. And therefore, <coughs> I'm, uh, I'm eager to, uh, to express what I'm speaking about here, and that is A particular point in this, in the the food chain from sea to soil to to plant to crop yields and all the way to the plate. I am speaking about what happens in the food production and and the role of water in that production, based on the fact that there is no water production without water. Now. I don't know what happens to these. Um. Well, when we speak about agriculture, agriculture uses tremendous amounts of water, uses 70 times more to, more water to produce the food for one person than what he needs in, the, in an urban household. We speak about the water in, in developing country cities of the of the order of 50 liters per person a day. But to produce the food for that person, we need 3,500 liters per person a day. So that is 70 times more. This is based on a diet along, along according to the present tendency, which moves towards 3,000 kilocalories per person a day and 20% animal protein. <clears throat> And this is based on the current productivity. If we improve productivity by closing 25% of the yield map, we may reduce the quotient from 70 to 55%. But still, there are enormous amounts of water, which are being literally consumed. <clears throat> However, the water requirement for food production they tremendously depend on diet and on water productivity and this is illustrated here and the left hand column shows you the present uh, water productivity and the the highest one is the one that i was speaking about and that is where the world is, is currently heading with the diets with with twi- with um, 3,000 kilocalories per person a day, and 20% animal protein. And the red part is the water needed for the animal protein. And therefore there is a discussion going on that 20% animal protein is unrealistic. We have to reduce it, and the second column shows you the result if we reduce it to 5%. the the right-hand column shows you what happens if we close the yield gap by 25 percent so you it's, one can say that that the, the the whole situation is manageable by managing the diet expectations now <coughs> let's proceed to look at the blue-green combinations in food production and I now turn to global studies <coughs> we have we have been interested at the stockholm university since the last five years in looking at where is the world heading we are looking at the issue of feeding humanity by 2050 the first the first um, um, part of of this um, this uh, uh, report on on the result of our studies there we have been interested in is there enough water for rain-fed agriculture in different countries? Where isn't there enough green? What are they going to do? Are they going to irrigate? Is there a possibility to irrigate by by existing enough blue water to irrigate? So, so we have based us. We have cooperated with the with the uh, university of Berlin, and they have made uh, um Model studies, pixel-based model studies of the situation by 2050 based on the assumption of UN projection of population growth, and we have paid attention to the climate change. We are looking at what the annual average rainfall can achieve. The climate change scenario we have been using is the A21. (coughs) The the pixel-based results of cropland water, the amount of water available on the cropland in a country, (coughs) have been summarized up to country values. And the dots that you see in this diagram are country values. On the vertical scale, we can read how much water there is on croplands in a country, and we can also distinguish the green, We can also distinguish the green from the blue. The, we can see how much green water there is by looking at, at the, 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 how much above the lower slanting line. That is the green water availability in a country, and what you have below the slanting line is the blue water availability. And the blue water availability on the cropland is seen as the water that is already in use for irrigation, plus 15% added. <coughs> the, uh, on the vertical axis you have the total water availability, and you can see between the two slanting lines there is 1,300 cubic meters per person and year in availability. So those those countries which are represented by dots between the two slanting lines, they have too little, they have too little green water to be self-reliant on rain-fed agriculture. The most interesting area here is area A, because uh, because the importance of the of the horizontal scale. On the horizontal scale, you can see the blue water availability, and the vertical line is 1,000 cubic meter per person a year. And we have the the feeling that there is a chronic water shortage when you have less than 1,000 cubic meter per person a year available. So this means that all the countries that are within area A here <clears throat> they have too little water to be to be self-reliant on on green water on rain, rain-based agriculture but at the same time they do not have enough blue water to be able to, to support their population by a, by an irrigated agriculture on the t- above the up above above the a, you have the, uh, the area B and these are interesting countries because they have too little blue water to be dependent on irrigated agriculture, but they have plenty of green. So they can develop a a rain-fed agriculture, and I will come back to that in a moment. Uh, Countries which are in the area C, they have too little green water to be rain-fed, but at the same time they have plenty of blue. They don't have chronic water shortage. And then you have the countries in area B and D, and they go far beyond, um, above the what we can see in this diagram, where we only see the water-short countries. So they have freedoms in both directions. So we can look at the policy implication. Well, that was one thing I have to stress, and that is the number of people living in these different areas. In this critical area A, we will have 46% of the world population by 2050. So the future of those countries is really a a focus for for research in the coming coming years. In in the region B, which I am going to speak about more, there are 14% of the world population. When, uh, having, uh, having realized these differences in situations in the different countries, we can also see differences in policy implications. And in, uh, in the vertical direction, I have blue water availability. So the upper window is blue water shortage. Below that, you have blue water freedom. In the horizontal direction, I have green water availability. First to the left, I have green water shortage and then green water freedom. And if we now look at the, at the window A here, where we have 46% of the world population by 2050, well, we understand that the policy implications must be horizontal expansion. That will be impossible to avoid in spite of the Millennium Development Goals, which prefers agriculture to stay on current crop lands. Another one must, of course, be food import, and the third one must be radical water productivity increases. If we look at the, 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 the bee, the, the, they, they have a green water freedom, so their upgrading of rain agriculture must be a preferred policy. If we now look at the situation in category B countries, we can see what the challenges are this diagram is based on PhD studies at the Stockholm University three year of studies in the Sahel region on what happens on the farmer's field when he works as he is used to the diagram is divided into two to the left we have the water balance of the farmers field the uh, the unit is percent of crop water requirements what you can see is that there are enormous blue water losses on the farmer's field. First he first of all during the 3 years that he studied this was in Niger outside of the capital Niamey that the during the 3 years he only got 90% of the crop water requirements as the average rainfall so he had he, he could operate with 90 Percent of the crop water diagram, but he lost 30 percent was immediately lost as uh, as surface water runoff. Then there was a poor water holding capacity, so 20 20 further percent percent was lost as percolation down to the groundwater. So what was left and stayed in the in the soil in soil moisture was only 39 percent of the of the crop water requirements. So the question was what could be achieved with those 39 percent? And then we go to the other diagram where we where I have added. It is the same. It is the same uh, vertical scale, but now I have added a horizontal scale on green water. And that scale shows you, in percent, the percent transpiration as a function of evaporation plus transpiration. And the, the, uh, the line shows you the achievable, um, how the achievable yield in different points in the diagram. Now, the, the farmers feel that is the, 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 um, the gray area in the middle of the diagram and he got only one ton per hectare. Why was that since there was 500 millimeter rainfall available? Well, it was because of these huge losses, the blue water losses, and in addition to the blue water losses, also huge green water losses in terms of evaporation from wet surfaces. The roots were not able to pick up the, the water that was in reality in the root zone because they were damaged by the dry spells, the repeated dry spells, which is typical for the climate in this region. In this um, in, in, in diagram, you can see it illustrated um, uh, in a different way. You can see where the rain went. There was 500 mm of rainfall 180 millimeter ran, uh, formed blue water, surface blue water runoff, the rest infiltrated. But there was a poor water holding capacity, so 120 millimeter passed on and formed groundwater. Out of the green water that stayed in the root zone, 140 millimeter just evaporated from wet surfaces and there was only sixty millimeter that the roots were able to pick up. So here we get an idea of what the problem is from a water perspective of developing rainfed agriculture in the uh, savanna zone. So that was the first first type of studies. Then we have then we have gone on. To make a global analysis, what happens if there there is a 25% yield gap closure? How much can be achieved in different countries? These circles here, they show you three different diets. To the the left, we have have the one we spoke about before, 3,000 kilocalories, 20% animal protein in the middle we have reduced the animal protein to five percent and to the right we have we have the the intake needed which is 2200 kilocalories per person a day and only five percent animal protein so that is what what would, would be needed if we could get rid of all the losses now the what the diagram shows you the blue the shows you the number of people living in countries with water surplus under the condition of the, of the diet. The green shows you the number of people living in countries with water deficit which have not water enough to produce that diet. But they have a purchasing power. They are uh, they are um, th- uh, th- thought to have purchasing power. This is, according to the, the, the World Bank economic and uh, structuralization of countries. And then we have the red. the red are the, they are waters, uh, water deficit countries, but without purchasing power. So that is the hotspots of tomorrow. And there you have 1.5 billion people, irrespective of what. What diet. And you can see that the number of people with surplus as opposed to those with deficit doesn't change very much. So we have we are having but uh, of the order of 3 to 3.7 billion people in water surplus countries and for some 4 billion people in water deficit countries plus the 1.5 in the hotspot countries. And here you can see the size of the water deficit. We have here it's only the, the 3,005% and the 2,205% because we have found that there is not enough water for, to feed the world on the 3,020% level. There is not enough surplus to, to compensate for the deficiency. But here you can see the amounts and the red numbers. That is basically the amounts that have to go into virtual flow, the transfer of water from the water deficit, from the water surplus countries to the water deficit countries. And in the 3,005% alternative, it's of the order of 2,000 cubic meters per person a year. To, uh, cu- sorry, cubic kilometers per year. But it's, it's just enough is of surplus in the in the percent the virtual water needs are, are of course much lower but there is an additional thing which is interesting or thought-provoking in this in this table and that is if we look at the low income co- window up here in the 3,005 percent the the water deficit is 700 cubic kilometers per year, but there is no surplus, no country with surplus. So it means that that the low-income countries are water short. They have a water deficit. They, uh, They cannot support their populations by 2050. So the conclusions they so far is that after 25% yield gap closure, we find that there will not be enough water for the present diet tendency of 3,020%. And that is the level where we have Mexico, we have um, Brazil, we have Indonesia today. There will be just enough for an average diet of 3,005%. And there will be much water to gain from food loss reduction. You saw the difference in in water involved if we went from the three thousand five percent to the two thousand two hundred. But food is of course not the only biomass water claimant because we in addition to that we need to grow cotton, fuel wood. And we also need to take uh, pay attention to the carbon sequestration needs, so there is plenty of research items for for the future <coughs> to address that was wh- what I'm going to say about what we have uh, what we have uh, seen at the Stockholm University in our Studies on feeding humanity by 2050 and the core problems which have to be addressed and the problems which have to be overcome. I now want to to, uh, to add a global scale uh, observations. The first one is is how this, the links between green and blue water. How we find these links if we look. At the, 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 the major uh, environmental problems today, the desertification, the salinization, the savannization, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And here you can see them entered into the water cycle. You have the atmosphere at the top, and you have the, the land to the, to the left, and the water to the right. And the water circulates in the water cycle, of course. <coughs> If we look at desertification, well that is linked to partitioning point one in between green and blue water. So what happens with desertification, it is a problem of infiltration, so there is a reduced opportunity to produce green water, which means that all the rain, run, most of the rain will run off as blue water. If we go to, to problem number two, salinization, It takes place in the lower partitioning point on the land. What happens is that it is driven by deforestation, which means that the green water uptake is reduced, and this means that the blue water population is increased. And then the effect of that is that groundwater is, is recharged. And the, the consequences is that the groundwater level is going to rise with time. And if the soils are salt, it's going to be a salt water, which, which rises towards the surface. And this is what has happened in, in southwestern Australia due to the, to the clearing of the land. Sevenization is a problem that we are speaking about in global discussions. This takes place in point three. It, it does not refer to green blue as much as to vapor fluxes. There, there, uh, there are two vapor fluxes that are meeting. One is the one come in the marine vapor coming in from the, Atlanta, from Atlant- from the Atlantic. And then there is the moisture feedback, the green water flow from below, from the the, uh, the tropical rainforest. The problem is the deforestation in that area, which means that the vertical, the moisture feedback from below is going to decrease. And this means that there will only be, uh, in the extreme, there will only be the marine inflow which means that the vapor in the atmosphere will be, will be decrease, and the effect of that will be decreased, rainfall generation, and the region which will suffer from that is La Plata River Basin, which is downwind of the tropical rainforest. Number four, number four is the monsoon shift over India, and this is a similar phenomenon, which is just uh, it is just a hypothesis at present, but it has to do with the meeting of two of two vapor flows: one coming in from the Indian Ocean, and the other one coming up from the irrigated areas in India. And the idea is that the this um, the, the the increased vapor flux from below will have an increasing effect on the on the um, the vapor flow then we have the groundwater depletion which then we are at point five where this is a blue water flow towards uh, to those seepage area but what we are what happening is that we are adding a green component a consumptive use which reduces the blue component and then the river depletion is the same thing. We have a blue water flow, but we are adding a consumptive use. So we can see that one can see many problems when looking at the world with a combined green-blue perspective. And finally, I will bring up the issue of the planetary freshwater constraint, which has been presented a few years ago. This has to do with the, with the, um, the, the climate change and the, the concern that the climate change will, will alter the, uh, the availability of rainfall. So, uh, and, the, and that, that there is a, a risk that the aquatic ecosystems will, uh, will um, have problems due to a reduced river flow because we grow too much, which means that we increase the consumptive use too much, so there isn't enough water left in the river. So here you can see the thinking. (coughs) You have the water cycle once again, but now it's a circle where I have introduced the terrestrial ecosystems to the left and the aquatic ecosystems to the right. (coughs) In in the, the upper part of the diagram, that is the atmosphere, the lower part of the diagram, you have the continents. And the rain falls over the land. That is point A in the diagram. And when it, when it, it grows in the land, the, uh, there is a, cons- a, a consumptive use going back to the atmosphere. And the larger that consumptive use is, the lower is the runoff generation. <clears throat> and the runoff generation, that's the, the, the water from which society takes its water. And when society takes water, the part of that water goes back as a wastewater return flow, and the other part goes as a consumptive use back to the atmosphere. And it is only what is left that is the environmental flow that, that um, uh, feeds the aquatic ecosystems and is fundamental for the health of the aquatic ecosystems and the fish production, etc. So now the problem is that there is a concern that the river depletion is going too far. So what has what, there that, that is a constraint to be formulated to, to, to hinder that the river depletion goes too far. In other words, that at point C, there is too little water left. The, the task is to secure environmental flow. But to do that, you have to limit A and B. And the, the freshwater constraint is formulated as the maximum acceptable consumptive blue water use, in other words, in irrigation, basically. But in reality, it has to, you have to add A and B to stay within the constraint which is, which is uh, defined as maximum 5,000 cubic kilometers per year is acceptable as increased consumptive use beyond what the situation in the mid-19th century, now 20th century. So if we look at the consequences of this, we have this formulation that the humanity's consumptive use increase has to remain below 5,000 cubic kilometers. Now, already appropriated today is 2,600, so the the window left is limited. It's limited to 2,400. Now, with the example of 3,000 kilocalories per person a day, 20% uh, meat, we would need 1,700 of these. And then there would be only 700 left for biofuels and sequestration and so on. So you can see that, 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 these, that, that the green-blue water problematique has to be addressed also in a global perspective. And this brings me to, the, uh, emerging, to three emerging core questions. One is evidence uh, this large dependence on virtual water the enormous number of people living in countries with water deficiency by 2050. How to make that uh, that water trade reliable? And I guess that this is things that has to start already now with with moving in that direction. The second emerging core question is the issue of the food security in poor and water-short countries. How? What is their future? Of course, development has to stress economic development in those countries and economic development that is not based on water. And the third issue is balancing within the limited window left if we pay attention to the planetary freshwater constraints. In other words, the competition between different forms of biomass production versus the possibility to manage via the dietary expectations where the meat is a core component. Thank you. (laughs) And before I end, I wish to, to, to Greet those of you who are interested. Welcome to the World Water Week in Stockholm, the last week in August this year, where the theme is the same one as here water and food security. Thank you.